Morning, church. Man, what an exciting time to be with you this morning to celebrate Jesus Christ and all that God has done for us through His Son. Uh, it's good to have you here as the family of God to lift His name in praise, dig into His Word, to discover how we're called to live, and encourage each other on the journey. Thank you for being here today. We want to say a special welcome to our guests that are here as well. Thanks for joining us, being a part of our time together. And of course, we would hope if you're looking for a church home, man, we'd love for you to think about Crosspoint being that place that you can call home to use your gift set to help us share that message of Jesus Christ, that story of hope that this world so desperately, desperately needs. We're excited that you're here today. Well, we hope that you've got your Bibles this morning as well. Please turn to Luke chapter 10. We'll be there in just a few moments, but we'll also look at a small letter called Philemon toward the end of your New Testament. We'll look at that as well. But I want to reiterate before we jump into this morning's lesson what Kale's already mentioned, and that's next Sunday is our Mission Sunday. It's so important, church, that we be in prayer about how God is leading us in this world, in our community, and how we can share that message, uh, gospel message, out to the world around us. Uh, And so it's already been alluded to, if you're interested at all, if you just have an inkling, maybe stay after service is over for a meeting here or in the youth room for one of those trips. But definitely be in prayer about the 74000 that we're hoping to raise next Sunday as we want to share that message of Christ, not only here, but all around the world. You can check our missions board right out here in the commons to see all of the different places that we help share that message of Jesus. It's going to be really important next Sunday. Talk to uh, your family about what you might want to give, the commitment that you might want to make, and be prepared next Sunday to do that very thing. Well, we're in our third week of this idea called Making Space, and the very first week we were together, we talked about what Paul called us to in Ephesians chapter 2, that we're one body, one family together in Jesus Christ. Last week, we unpacked and talked a little bit about racism and how that's not part of God's plan. Today, we want to talk a little bit about classism uh, and what does it look like when other people might be in a different tax bracket, a different part of town on the other side of the track, so to speak. How are we called as people of God to interact in those moments as well? Now, I don't know how many of you enjoy Saturday morning, but specifically what I'm talking about is HGTV. Anybody, anybody watch any of those building shows? Absolutely. Uh, I, I love watching how sometimes they get a house or they'll flip a house and they, they're making it new for somebody else. And one of those shows, of course, has Chip and Joanna in it. Chip and I are good friends. You know, to be honest, he doesn't know me from Adam, but I'd like to know Chip. I'd like to know Chip. He looks like a fun guy. But you know, as he gets to, to work in that house, the very first day, his favorite day is demo day. Yeah, you know it too. And he loves breaking out the sledgehammer and knocking down walls and kind of creating an open space, open floor plan. That's trending right now. And some of you have those open floor plans. Uh, and it's, it's pretty easy. He loves that part of the day, knocking down the walls and kind of creating space. That's the easiest part. And then putting it all back together is the difficult thing because sometimes you, you need special trusses or headers or whatever might come into play in order to hold that roof up. But demo day is an easy day. Now, in relationships, it's totally opposite because tearing down walls is difficult for you and I. When we lean into the story that Jesus Christ has called us into, we know what's expected, but oftentimes it is difficult to tear down the barriers and the walls that exist in our life and create open space 
for everybody involved in the plan, in the story, in your life. Paul draws attention to that in our key text in Galatians chapter 3. He's calling us to a different lifestyle, and I want to read that again this morning, beginning in verse 26. Paul says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We've all been called into this one family with one another. No matter where you come from, what you look like, what your skin color is, what your life choice might be, we've all been invited to the table through what Christ has done for us on the cross. And that book of Galatians, Paul, that whole premise in all six of those chapters is about that very idea, that we're called together in unity. And so this morning, as we begin our time together and talk about classism, I want to give you a definition of what that might look like. And it reads like this. It's prejudiced against or in favor of people based upon their socioeconomic status. This kind of elitism that sometimes we as Americans not only have here in our own country, but when we go abroad, we've been called the ugly American before, entitled. We think things are owed to us. And sometimes we can have that, that mental air about us, if you will. And as we interact with people around us who don't look like us or are in the same tax bracket as us or live in the same part of town or, or root for the same team, we kind of have this elitism about us, if you will. Sometimes we look at people of different color or nations of origin, and we find maybe it might even be easier to create a relationship with folks in that category rather than folks that may look different than us in the tax bracket. And generally, it's because we don't live in the same space. They live in a different part of town. We live in a different neighborhood. They may live in the outskirts, and others live in the center of town. Some gated community, others not. And the list goes on and on of what that might look like. And so we're called as people of God to live intentionally into the life that God's called us into. We can't just float along. We've got to be intentional about how we interact with people. And that elitism is not just in our culture and our neighborhoods. Sometimes we find it in the context of a church family as well. Sometimes we find it in the very space where we come to worship the God who's given us his son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we look at spiritual maturity as one of those kind of elitist moments. Maybe you know the original languages. Maybe you've memorized the Bible. Maybe you've, you've read it through several times. Maybe you're super involved in one of ministry and other people are not. And so you kind of have this spiritual air of elitism about yourself. That you're a little more maybe spiritually mature than the next person. Sometimes it's just a sin that people struggle with. You know that they're, they're wrestling with this one temptation in their life. They're dealing with this one particular thing that, that they're going through. It's not a problem for you. And so you look at them and you think, well, if they had just, or if they would just, if they had just done this thing over here, then it wouldn't be an issue. You don't struggle with it. And so you kind of feel a little superior maybe in the moment. Sometimes we come at it from different angles as well. We, we may say something to the effect, well, my grandparents or great-grandparents helped start this congregation. My family's been here for decades, and so you feel this kind of uh, specialness about yourself. 
kind of elitism. I, I've been here all along. It was my family who helped start this place, by the way. Or maybe it's what you put in the collection plate. Maybe you write a check every week or you help support one particular ministry or you've been on a number of mission trips that you help fund. And so somewhere along the way, you think money has bought you a voice in the church. And collectively, as we look at all of those examples, church, that is not the way the church was designed to work. Because the Bible tells me that we are all one in Christ Jesus. No one is more special than anyone else. We all are special to Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what tax brackets you're in, what part of town that you live in. You and I have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And we each one are worth something to God. Some, sometimes this mentality, it, it's, it's kind of like boarding a plane. How many of you have ever flown before in here? I mean, on a plane, of course. <laughs> I, I've flown a lot of times, and there's that moment where you're outside the gate, and you're sitting, waiting to board the plane, and, and the person working for the airline, they walk up to the mic, and you can hear them key it up, and everybody jumps up, and they get in line. In that moment, I don't know if you've ever thought this, but I'm, I'm thinking, why are you in a hurry to get in this very cramped space? We can't leave until everybody is on the plane. Just hang out. Have a Starbucks. Wait. It's okay. But everybody jumps up because there's a boarding order, isn't there? The very rich and mighty get to go on first. Now, I went on a website and I looked at the boarding order for one particular airline. I won't mention the name. But it went something like this. The first people to get on are the pre-board concierge key members. I don't know what that is, but it sounds really important. I'm betting, I'm, be, I'm betting that they've paid a lot of money to have that title. Well, the next people, once they're on, is, is the first class, and, and they get to go on and get boarded. The next one is the executive platinum, and the very next group is the platinum, and the next group is the gold. I mean, these, these people are fancy. The next one is the main cabin extra, and then the main cabin, and then the economy. Now, sometimes I get on in the economy. I need to fix that quote. I always get on in the economy. (laughs) Always. Never the other ones. I don't know what those feel like. Sometimes it's like elementary school and a kickball game. You're ready to go out to recess, and kind of the class leader, the guy with the voice, or the girl with the voice, they grab the kickball, and they go out to the pitcher's mound, and everybody gathers around, and it's time to pick teams. And there are two cat. Wow. We'll end with a prayer now, I guess. They gather around, and the teams get chosen, and it's getting less and less, and you find yourself sitting there waiting to get picked for a team. Happened to me often. And that's what it feels like when people around you kind of feel this elitism. They're more special, maybe, than you are. And and it isn't unique to our particular culture. It was alive and well in Jesus' time, in Paul's time. There was a a great diversity among people. They were classified and segmented and pigeonholed through your gender or your race or your religion. Paul dealt with it as well. Jesus dealt with it. And that's something that's beautiful about Jesus' teaching. I don't think we fully comprehend 
how radically different Jesus Christ was when he came and in his ministry. He taught something that was so far removed from what anyone ever thought possible. Everyone can come to the table? And Jesus says, yes. Jesus in his teaching every single time brings a sledgehammer to the table in order to break down walls and barriers so everyone feels the love of God. No one is separated or segregated. Everyone is invited to the table. And in our text today is going to be one you're familiar with in Luke chapter 10. The, the, the religious elite of Jesus' day are tired of how popular Jesus has become, and they're ready to put him in economy. They don't want him in first class anymore. He's got too many followers, and so they kind of try to set him up, paint him in a corner, which is how they always tried to, to do Jesus. But Jesus so brilliantly enters into the conversation with compassion and love and showing them what God is truly all about. And our text begins in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Again, they're trying to set Jesus up, and Jesus does this so well, he always answers seemingly a question with a question. Jesus continues in verse 26, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. A church, we have a lot of discussion about different things. We go back and forth on different things. But this morning, we have read what Jesus says is the most important thing in all of church. Love God, love people. That's it. Doesn't get any harder than that. Doesn't get any easier than that. That's it. Love God, Love people. And then in verse 29, the man has an important question. And he says, or asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who's the person I'm supposed to reach out to? Who's the person I'm supposed to interact with? I call it L1, L2. That's love God, love people. That's, that's a real simple way to remember. But we're called to interact with people around us in a compassionate, grace-filled, merciful way, a way that shows God's love through our life. And so as Jesus does, the greatest storyteller of all time, he begins to tell the story in Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus says, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, church, most of us, if we're going to be honest this morning, we like to point fingers at the priest and the Levite. But the truth is, you and I many times are exactly like them. Because of the busyness of our day, because of our schedule, because of things we have going on, you and I every day step over people in order to get to whatever's at the end of our day. And we don't stop and help others along the way. 
Busyness in life is the sickness that prevents us from looking like Jesus. And you and I need to have Sabbath and rest and create margin in our life so that we can attend to everyone who comes along our way in the course of a day and look like Jesus to them. You and I come up with mind-numbing ways to waste time throughout the course of the day. We may, we may say we need to mow the yard or, or fix dinner or run the kids over here or maybe be gone an entire weekend on some sports tourney situation. Any number of things that we insert into our life to create this busyness. And at the end of the day, what we end up saying is, I just didn't have time. But the truth is, what we should say is, I just didn't make time. Because you and I make time for what's important to us. Sometimes we look at people and the struggle that they have, it's not necessarily our struggle. They make a a poor choice, have a wrong group of friends that lead them down the wrong way, and we say, well, that's what you get. I mean, we look at our story that Jesus is telling right here. It's 17 miles between Jerusalem and Jericho. It's a high mountain road. He's by himself. He's got some things to sell. We would, might look at that and say, you know, he should have been on that road. He should have been doing something different. But I'm glad that that's not what Jesus thought about me. Because Jesus took the time to come and lift me out of my ditch. He, he came to help me out in my time of struggle. And Jesus is speaking to an entirely Jewish audience, which is really important to understand best. Verse 33. He goes on to say, then a despised Samaritan came along. He uses the word despised because he wants the attention of those he's talking to. You see, Samaritans and Jews had racial issues, a lot of tension between them. They'd rather just go to war with one another. And so saying a despised Samaritan, the audience says, yeah, that's, that's right. But he goes on to say, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. He felt love for him. A moment in his day to stop, although he was headed to a destination as well, he saw someone in need and decided to make space at the table to break out the sledgehammer and knock down the walls of racial tension and enter into this one man's life. I don't know how many of you ever got to watch the 1993 movie Schindler's List. It was a a moving picture by Spielberg. It was the first movie as an adult that at the end of the movie, everyone in the audience stayed seated. Nobody moved. The only thing you could hear in the audience was the sniffles of those who had been crying throughout the course of the movie. It was a powerfully moving movie. Oscar Schindler was this German who enjoyed making money, factory work. He was a business owner. It was in the middle of World War II. To finally, he moved his factory, had his factory very close to a German concentration camp where Jews were being housed. And so he worked out a deal with the commandant to get Jews out of that concentration camp and come and work in his factory for free so he could make even more money. He used some of the money that he made and paid off the commandant. But what you discover through the course of the true story is that Oscar all along is pulling Jews out of the concentration camp, their certain death, in order to give them life. He crossed every possible barrier 
to save lives. And Jesus did that for you and for me. And we're called to imitate him in every possible way. And so we begin by asking the question today, so what do I need to do to make space at the table? What do I need to do to make space at my table? We begin to intentionally ask questions of those around us, asking questions like, I wonder what it's like in their world. I wonder what life would be like to walk a mile in their shoes. I wonder what they have to deal with every single day. If I was them, what would my desire be? And in those questioning moments, we begin to have this empathy for those who are around us. Jesus continues his his story in verse 34. He says, Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And what we discover in the context of Jesus' story is when you and I begin to act like Jesus Christ, it's going to cost us something. You and I are going to have to give something up along the way. Maybe the most difficult thing, the most most difficult thing to move in order to make space at the table is the chair of indifference in our life. This idea of of just being apathetic or I don't care, it doesn't really involve me. When you get involved in Jesus' world, you realize right away that's not how Jesus operated. We're called to enter into people's worlds. The man in our story asked the question, who is my neighbor? And as being in ministry for so many years, it's the, the tiring question that I, I continue to have to answer and I grow tired of answering because really the question is not who is my neighbor. The question behind the question is how long do I have to care? Where's the boundary where I don't have to care anymore? Now we look at our story and we don't, we don't know what happened to the religious leader in Jesus' story. For all we know, he bought into Jesus, his storyline, joined the following, became a disciple, grabbed a sledgehammer, and with Jesus began tearing down walls around himself. I mean, unity is a great thing, isn't it? Unity is great when it's over there, when it's over there or on that side. Unity is great until the homosexual couple moves in next door. Unity is great until until the Hindu family moves in two doors down. Unity is great until that particular ethnic person you have an issue with is two cubicles down from you in your office. Paul writes this letter at the very end of the New Testament. That's where we find it. It's called Philemon. There's never been a better illustration of what Paul is calling us to than this particular letter. We're not going to read the letter in full, but I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version. It's a very short one-chapter letter called Philemon. Now, Philemon is a slave holder, a slave owner. He's a property owner at, at this church. He's got slaves. One of those slaves mentioned in the letter is a slave called Onesimus. And Onesimus in Greek translated into English means useful. Uh, and Paul is going to use that translation as he talks to Philemon about who Onesimus is. You see, Onesimus was a runaway slave. He had left his master, Philemon. He had found Paul. 
And in doing so, had found Jesus Christ, had been baptized, and now he's a brother in Christ. He's not just a slave, not a runaway slave, but he's a brother in Christ. And so there's a guy, a messenger by the name of Tychicus, who's going to take Paul's letter, along with Onesimus, back to the church where Philemon is a member. Now, the way things worked in ancient times is Tychicus would have shown up at the church on a morning like today. He would have unrolled the letter from Paul and began reading it, and it would have been like a dramatic act. Tychicus would have played the part of Paul, and the church would have interacted back with oohs and ahs, are you serious, all kinds of vocalizations back and forth. Onesimus would have been with him. Philemon would have been in the church as well. And what Paul tells him is unbelievable for the culture in which they live. You see, at any given moment, Rome was about 30% slaves. On any given year in Rome, about 250,000 slaves were sold. And a male slave was always kept in the category of a boy. Never a man. A boy, so two things would happen. One, he could never own property. Two, he could never get married. And so this is the life that Onesimus has been living. But now, he's a brother in Christ. And Paul, in his letter says something that socially is out of this world. He says, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ should not be slaves and slave owners because you're family. You're one now. It's a different life in Christ Jesus. And we know that the letter worked because it's in our New Testament. If it hadn't, it would have been thrown away. Paul calls us to a different kind of living. That even when you believe people are very different than you, yet they have believed in Christ, then they're part of your family. We are brothers and sisters together. No no matter where we are on the tax bracket, no matter the color of our skin or nation of origin, no matter your educational level, No matter your considered spiritual maturity, we're all family together. You know, in 250 years of this country, we've done away with slavery, but the tension is still there. I know you can see it on the news and as you're out in the marketplace every single day. There's nothing that we can do as human beings that changes that really. And church, I'm absolutely convinced that the only thing that can truly change who you and I are in Christ is by the indwelling of the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the only thing that is going to change your mind and my mind. To really lean into and understand how Jesus has called us to be one family together in Him. That the Holy Spirit interacting within each and every one of us will make true and real change. Not legislation, not somebody trying to tell you what morality is all about, but truly letting the power of the Holy Spirit transform your life so that we are not conformed to the world anymore, but being transformed each day by the renewing of our minds in the Holy Spirit. Paul, over and over in his writings, has tremendous ability to relate this particular idea, but he does it so well in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read the first two verses of that chapter. Because it's so powerful. And Jesus starts out by saying, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. No condemnation. 
He goes on to say, all because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin. Do you hear that, church? It's the power of the life-giving spirit that's created us to be different people in Christ Jesus. And so the call this morning is that we would lean into the life we've been called into in Christ Jesus, knowing that we're empowered through the Holy Spirit to be different to see people differently, to be compassionate and full of mercy and grace to those around us, to give the time of day to those that we might otherwise step over and move on with our busy schedule. And so this morning, as we wind our time down today, the call this morning is that you and I would allow that transformative Holy Spirit to live within us and transform us to look more and more like Jesus Christ, to say, you know, it's time for me to get my sledgehammer out. It's time for me to tear down some walls, to break down some barriers, and make sure that everyone is invited to the table. Because as we said week number one, this table actually belongs to God. It doesn't belong to me. And so the rules and regulations that I've created and written down, I need to wad those up, put them in the trash can, because the table belongs to God. I don't get to decide who comes to the table. We are all one in Jesus Christ. And so as we wind our time out, I want you to feel the tug of your heart. I want you to feel the Holy Spirit in your life, calling you to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and praise his name together.